Guys, would you grab a Bible? Make your way this morning to the book of 1 John chapter 2. On Sunday mornings, we're making our way verse by verse through the book of 1 John, just seeking to understand the things that God has for us, and we're wanting you to be there with us. So again, hoping you brought a Bible. And if so, you're making your way there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you that you can grab hold of there. Got a page number on the screen. Uh, You can use an electronic device. However that works, one way or another, we're wanting you to be with us in the Word of God so that God would speak to you through that. So that's true here, but for you guys who are joining us in the overflow, for you guys joining us online, same invitation. Would you, call, would you open up a Bible so that God could just open up His Word to you? So that you're just drawing into this, we're just longing that it be a place that that would work inside of all of our lives, and so we long that you have a Bible open so you can see what God is speaking, and may He do that this morning. Let's take a moment and pray for that. I'm going to lead in prayer. I hope you would pray as well that you would be one who would ask God just to take His truth and help you get it, understand it where you are, and that it would work effectively in your life. Let's ask Him for that. God, you're such an amazing God, a God who is at work, and I take heart in that right now. We come before you this morning, and I present myself, and I present us here before you, and I know that you know us. I know that you know right where we are. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I ask right now that you'd help us to understand it and that you'd give us understanding of the passage before us. And then I ask, Lord, that you'd help it to connect to us, that you would cause us to be those who hear what you have for each one of us here. You have such a unique and powerful way of doing that, that you can take your truth and connect it to us so we just get it right where we are. I love that you do that. Do that here. Do that now. Cause it to be that in this space, in this time, we hear your voice. Make it so right now as we surrender this to you. We ask for it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, we're here in 1 John chapter 2. Let's read the section that we're going to cover this morning. If you have your Bibles, follow along down there in chapter 2, verse 15. It goes this way. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So what in the world is this talking about? Pun intended, just by the way, FYI. Hey, the world, yeah, that's what it's talking about. And yet right off the bat, it's where we need to begin our understanding. Because right here, John tells you and I, God speaks to us and says, hey, don't love the world. He invites us, he tells us what it is. And yet right off there, we need to think about it and just give a little bit of a definition. So what are we talking about? When God is inviting and speaking to us about not loving the world. What do we mean by that? Because honestly, the word world can be used in a lot of different ways. It has different connotations, even through the word of God. Understand this, when we talk about it here, we're not talking about the physical world, nor the world of people, but the world of sin is being talked about. It's not the physical world. Sometimes when the Bible talks about it that way, it speaks about that, right? We have a physical world. We have mountains and rivers and streams and clouds and animals. That's not what he's talking about. That's, that's part of the world. That's a, a world that's there, but that's not the focus here. Sometimes the world has people in view. That we think about the world, and it's the world of people. So you'd have like the verse there in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There, the idea is the world of mankind, people. But this is more than that. It's not the world just of people, it's the world of sin. It's this idea that the Bible sometimes uses this word world to look at this world lived in rebellion against God. That there's a world, a world system that in many ways that is ignoring God, that is at war with God, that is living outside of God's ways, and that is known in that sense as the world. Now, we know that's what he's talking about, 
because he defines it for us. Yeah, that's in the next verse. You got your Bibles there again, and again, it's telling us in verse 15, do not love the world. Then skip down to verse 16, and he gives it to us this way. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So he gives this definition. He says, everything in the world, it is one of three things. It is either the lust of the flesh, it is the lust of the eyes, or it's the pride of life. He says, that's what we're talking about. That's the aspect that God wants to speak to us about this morning. Now, three things are given to us, but let's be just clear. In essence, we're talking about sin. In essence, these three categories are three categories of sin. That when you think about sin, all sin that's in our world really falls into one of these three categories. And so he's giving it to us this way, and he's calling us to say, hey, these are the things that are wrong. These are the things that are lived in rebellion against God. Don't let that be your heart. Now, I just want to pause and say this. There's a ton of insight that's here. You literally could spend a bunch of time uh, just diving into the nature of sin and what sin looks like and all of its aspects, and you might want to take it further on your own study, but that's not really the, the, the meat of the passage. That's not where it's going. That said, we do need to have at least a, a, a simple understanding of it, so let's dive into these three with a way of just trying to understand them, and then we want to say, okay, why are we talking about it here this morning? So these three things that are sin, he tells us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Let me give you a two-word definition for each of these that might be helpful for some of you this morning. Yeah, the lust of the flesh is that which feels great. The lust of the eyes is that which looks great. And the pride of life, it is to be great. Yeah, in some ways, that's what these are. It is this pull and this thing in this world to feel great, look great, be great, to, to look in these things that seek to draw our lives after them. Now, that might be helpful, but let's go a little bit deeper so that you can understand where I'm going there. Yeah, when we think about these three things, well, the lust of the flesh, let's just begin there, lust. That's a word that speaks about just wanting, wanting, wanting. It's not always negative in the Bible. Sometimes it can be a good thing, but most of the time when we use this word lust, it speaks about this just kind of passion that is craving something, desiring something, wanting something in a strong way. It is lust. He says it's here, it's the lust of the flesh. That is physical cravings, things that rise out of our bodies, out of, who, uh, of, our, of the people that we are, that then become these things that move in rebellion against God. Now, when we think about that, it's not hard in one sense to understand. In fact, for some, uh, you know, when they think about it, they think about it only being maybe immorality or sex, but it's not just that. It can be food or drugs or alcohol or a whole bunch of other things that become just these desires that arise from these bodies that we have, these desires that are not altogether bad in themselves in places, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but that can move into rebellion, being driven by these passions, being driven by that. And so he's highlighting that and says, hey, these are the lusts of the flesh, or we could say it this way, our world would look upon it and say, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. That's the lust of the flesh, that whatever you feel, whatever makes you happy, whatever just kind of, you know, makes that, that's what you should do, or to use the two-word definition that I gave you this morning, it just feels great. That's what it is. It's this pull to, to just do those things that we crave or physically are craved. Now, it's an interesting thing, by the way, as we do think about sin, I think about it this way, and Paul's speaking about it in Corinthians. It says, now, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. It's a fascinating understanding. I just give it to you briefly. As we seek to understand sin, and this is a great passage, by the way, with much more depth than we're diving into in that, but the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, he says, here's the thing. You all struggle with these things. Everybody in this room, I just need you to know that. I need you to know that you're not the only one. Everybody in this room struggles with these things. Everybody's here. That being said, it's not that we all struggle with the exact same things. See, we could go through things that are lust of the flesh, and you might honestly say, hey, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for me. 
I, I, don't, I don't desire those things. Other people might desire some of those things. It's not, not effectively moving. Sometimes immorality or even types of immorality. And people are like, well, that doesn't draw me. I just want to say that's probably true. Our own background, our own physical bodies, there's a lot of things that bear into this, but please understand this. Nobody in this room is exempt from the lust of the flesh. You have some, you know, it's one of those places like you may not desire the same things, but you are driven at times being pulled into sometimes rebellion by this thing that the Bible describes as the lust of the flesh. And it's just helpful in that sense to go, yeah, we don't all struggle with the exact same things, but we all struggle with this. And knowing that, that we have this thing that is the lust of the flesh, this desire that, that would seek to please that, he says, hey, that's part of what the world is that seeks to draw away from God. Well, that leave that when it's not just lust of the flesh, it's also lust of the eyes. Kind of a similar one because it's still lust. It's still this wanting, wanting, wanting. Like, I just want something. I just crave that. But instead of it arising from our physical bodies that almost just, you know, has this hunger or something that would draw to that, this becomes that which we just look upon or we appreciate or we want. Now, many times this is driven by uh, envy. So the Bible would talk about it as covetousness, that we look upon what other people have and we want it, or we look upon something we don't have, and it's like, I want that. I, I, I want what that looks like. Now, this can be things like the love of money. That can be the desire for what we don't have, the love of things or success, and there's others that kind of fall into this category, this place where we're attracted to something, where we're invited to something by just grabbing hold of the way that we see it. Or again, to use my two-word definition, it just looks great. It just looks great. Now, I pause again to say this. You understand this. Everybody struggles with this. We don't all desire the same things. We all desire things. We all desire things. We all find ourselves being moved away from it, and our world maximizes this. You can think about it this way. Almost every advertisement that's out there, every billboard, every commercial, this is its goal to put something before your eyes and say, you want what you don't have. I have something for you that you don't own. I have something that, 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 is, that you could have that is not a part of your life right now, and, and it seeks to do that. That being said, understand it would never satisfy. I like the way Solomon speaks about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. You know, there is this understanding that our eyes almost have an appetite. Someone called, you know, kind of feast your eyes on this, we'll say. Having the idea of looking, and sometimes it is that way, but honestly, it never satisfies. When that's what you seek to live, it's never enough. Somebody that says, I want money, you'll never have enough money. If you say you want things, you'll never have enough things. You'll always want something more. It'll always be something more because it's an unsatisfying reality, but there is a pull that is this world that seeks to pull you in a wrong way, and it happens that way. So we have the first of them, which is the lust of the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. The third is the pride of life. It's not hard to understand. I think you probably get it right off the bat, but we'll just understand it. Pride is where you're the center of the world. Me, me, me. I mean, it's just about me. Everything's about me. Now, that's really true, and the idea of pride of life is our physical life or the life that we live here in this world. Without getting too technical, but some of you will be able to take it and go further. Life is an interesting thing. There are two Greek words used for life in the Bible. One of them is bios, bios, where we get our word biology from. And the, other one, the second one is zoe, which really speaks about spiritual life. So when it talks about spiritual life, it uses the Greek word zoe. When it's talking about physical, just life here, it's biological life, and that's this one. He says, you know, there is something that's just, I, I just want my life here to be about me. It is this exaltation of me. Now, this one is often by comparison. That is, we compare ourselves with others, and we want to be seen greater. I want to be better than you, or seen better than you. It's putting my life at the center of my world and making it all about me. Now, to do so, it really does exalt itself above God and exalts itself above others, which is how we're made to be. Love God, love people, Exalting myself puts me at the center of the world. It's all about me. It's all about me. Now, here's the deal. It's not all about you. 
I, I just want to say it right as clearly as I can. You just need to understand it's not all about you. In fact, the word pride that's used here is really interesting because it literally has that as part of its definition. It has the idea of empty pride or empty boasting. Like you boast about something you don't have. And I just need to say it in the most simple way. If you, where this pulls you, it's just not true. And yet we're drawn to it. I, I know that you guys probably understand, but sometimes we have this propensity to look at the world as if everything that happened, it's all about me. So we'd even look at like weather patterns and we're like, man, it's all about me. I mean, why is the weather doing this to me? I mean, you know, the, it doesn't matter how it's affecting the entire universe, but it's me. It's all about me. It's putting myself as if the world revolved around who I am and, and what's a part of my life and it just doesn't. But it pulls us that way. I think about just this reality that we desire to be that way. And so my two-word definition is, again, is this place that we would just, should we be great? It's a pull that is a part of my sinful nature. Now, God is really clear about it. He resists this. All the way through this word, he says this so many times and in so many ways. God looks at pride and says, I will fight that. I resist that. Wherever we get pridefully resisted, but he gives grace to the humble. That he invites us to be in that place of, of moving away from the sinful propensity that's in our world that can be in our life. It is that which God resists. So we look on these things. We think about what sin is, and again, he's giving it to us in these three things. We get a kind of a working definition, at least I hope, so that you can say, okay, I get what those are. This is what our world is, and this is what all of us find ourselves struggling with. Now, you could trace this all the way through the word. I, let me give you a couple examples. So the very first sin that ever took place, Eve, Satan comes and tempts her and gives it to us there in Genesis 3 where he tempts her to eat the fruit that God had told her not to eat. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. It's kind of interesting to note. Every aspect of sin is actually a part of this. She looks at it, and there is the lust of the flesh that's in there. It's good. It's good for food. Like, that would taste good. That just, that looks yummy. I just, I think that really looks yummy. On top of it, it's beautiful. She says she looks at it, and it's pleasant. It's pleasant to the eyes. I mean, it was just attractive in so many ways. But more than that, the pride of life was there. She just wanted to be wise, this desirable to, to, to be more. So all that sin was was present in that moment, and it's sometimes that way. Sometimes when sin kind of moves into our life, it can be all the big package that would be there. Other times, it would be only one aspect of it. I think about it as we fast forward into the New Testament, Jesus comes. tells us in Hebrews that he was fully tempted as we are yet never sinned, but he was fully tempted. So everything that sin was, he was. Now, that was a part of his earthly life, but very specifically, we get in Matthew 4 where Satan comes to him and tempts him. And so it tells us there when the tempter, that is Satan, came to him, Jesus, Satan said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus, if you're really God, you should feed yourself. Make these stones become bread. It's the lust of the flesh at this moment. You should just take care of that physical need because Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He was incredibly hungry. And right now, Satan says, you should just take care of that. Take care of that physical need right now. I mean, that, that was part of the temptation. Jesus overcomes it, resists it, and so Satan comes again. And he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. This becomes that pride of life, that place where he says, okay, you should just exalt yourself right now. I mean, if you really are who you are, show the world. Jump off a cliff and the angels will take care of you. The whole world will see. It'll force God's hand in so many ways. Prove it to the world right now. It was a temptation that Jesus sees and again he overcomes. And so Satan tries a third time. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I mean, he just takes Jesus and shows him the world, which is what Jesus loves. He came to give himself for. And it becomes that place of, of the lust of the eyes. Like, do you want this? 
I know that you want this. But now take it in a way that's not what God has. Take it in a way that would force it. All you have to do is, is rebel against God and worship me. And it was an incredible temptation for Jesus. He again, you know, wonderfully overcomes it. But it's in an interesting way that helps us to see it. Now, again, I just want to tell you, you could go through the entire word and find this. You could go through your life and see it and understand, yep, that's what sin is. Sin looks like that. These are the things we struggle with. This is what the world is. It finds itself in these three categories. So that's helpful. But let me be clear. It's not actually the point of the text. I mean, we needed to get a definition of it so we know what we're talking about. But really, this text isn't about understanding sin or even understanding what that is. He's helping us see what we shouldn't do. He gives us the definition of what the world is, and now we have that. But he calls us to an action. What's the action? Well, go back and see it. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Pause there. Yeah, that's, that's the action or inaction maybe. It's the idea that he looks and says, okay, now that you know what we're talking about, don't love that. Now that we know what we're talking about, we're talking about the world, this rebellious mankind that is just living in error, doing opposite what God has, don't love that. This is important. We're talking about love. We're talking about what grabs our hearts or our affections. We're not talking about legalism. It's a much bigger study, but I'll just give it to you quickly. Sometimes when people look at the sins of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we can have this propensity that moves towards legalism, that moves towards, you know, setting up rules and regulations. And so we become known for what we don't do. So you'd have someone, you know, kind of that, you know, old kind of traditional way of saying it, you know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. You know, kind of thing like, that's my world, these are my standards, like I don't do those things. Here's the deal. You could actually not do those things and your heart still is off. You could not do those things and your heart is still moved in affection. And, and, And honestly, legalism doesn't work. Legalism always creates a plastic life, always creates something that God is not looking for. All of its manifestations in the New Testament are bad things, so please hear me clearly. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a legalistic system, nor are we talking about a separation. We're, ta- this, we're talking about love, not a separation. What do you mean, Jim? Well, here's what's happened in church history. Sometimes people get an understanding of the things that you and I are talking about. Like, this world is bad. It's broken, and it's filled with lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And so sometimes what God's people have been tempted to do is to separate themselves from the world. There was a whole system early in in church history that kind of looked at this and said, you know, the only way to deal with the world is to get out of the world. And so they created monasteries and nunneries that said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I mean, the only way to to do this right is, you know, we're going to go live on the side of a mountain, and we're going to, you know, get away from all these worldly things. Only problem is they took the very heart of the thing still with them because it's not getting away from that, and that's not what God's calling to. In fact, Jesus clearly speaks about this when he prayed for us. The night before he went to the cross, he gives it to us this way in John 17. Jesus says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them uh, from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus prayed for you, and he prayed for me, and he says, you guys, you don't really belong to the world, but I'm not praying that you go live in a monastery. I'm not praying that you, you know, that God takes you out of the world. I want him to keep you in the world. I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. I want you to to, to be in the midst of that, and so certainly what he was praying for is that, and that's exactly where we're getting close to this morning. We're trying to understand, like, how do we do that? How do we not do this? It's not about separating ourselves. It's not about legalism. Once more, it's simply about love. It's about what grabs your heart. That's really where we've been in context, and it might be helpful just to quickly remind you of that. If you've been with us in 1 John, that's what we've talked about in our last couple studies. In our study two studies ago, we talked about in verses 7 through 11 that we were called to love people, very specifically that God's people are called to love the people of God. For he told us there's an old commandment that is now a new commandment in Christ, that we're to love one another just as Jesus loved us. And you might remember, Jesus talked to us about that. We looked back into when Jesus first gave that commandment, and he says, this is supposed to define you. 
all the world will know that you're my disciples when you guys have this love for one another, Jesus said, that I want you to be a people that in this world are known by this, that you are known by the love that you have for each other. That's what we're talking about. And then last week, we looked at spiritual maturity. And in the midst of it, we talked about how that real maturity or where God is seeking to bring every Christian is to love God or find our life in knowing Him. We, we talked about the different aspects of maturity that are given there in those verses and verses 12 through 14 and talked about little children, young men and fathers. And if you were there, just quick reminders, we saw that it really began with a relationship with God. Like that childlike beginning is beginning to know God as a father. But that's where it starts, but it's meant to grow. Every Christian is meant to grow. And if we grow, we grow into this place that the essence of our life becomes knowing God. It's the height of our existence. It's what we're made for. We're made for a relationship that we know Him who is from the beginning, that we've been designed for this, this place where we would love God. That is what He's drawing us to. And so in context, that's kind of where we are. So if you wanted to think about it this way, it's as if John just looked at us and said, I want you to love people, I want you to love God, and don't love the world. I want you to love people, I want you to love God, don't love the world. Make sure that your affections go in the right way because, again, it's really about this, that, that in this whole aspect we're talking about the nature of our hearts, that really that really becomes it. The issue is our heart. The issue is our love. The issue is what kind of grabs us there because what you love will define who you are and where you go. Solomon said it this way. He said, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Like guard that. Guard what captures you. Guard what you love. Guard what, what, you, what you look upon, what you, what you desire, because that's going to be what really defines your existence. That, that the very issues of your life are going to flow out of that. Now, this is really, really helpful, but again, really, really important that you understand that's where we need to go. That whatever this is and however this works, this world that we're a part of, he is telling us, don't let that be your heart. Don't let your heart be driven by the things that love this world or a part of this. Now, let me just say this. He commands it. Do not love the world. And because he commands it, it's possible to do this. Because he commands it in Christ, with Christ, this is actually possible. And I recognize not all of you need to hear this, but I really had a certain sense that there was going to be somebody here this morning that is hearing me this morning, and yet at the very moment, you're almost just laughing it off. Like, Jim, you know, don't love the world. You might as well tell me not to breathe. You know, it's like, how do you do that? I mean, that's just such a preacher thing. They, that's what preachers say. They get up there and they talk about these things. They don't even know what they're talking about. I'm just telling you, it's his word. And, and if you believe this is impossible, I'm just telling you, it is possible. He, he wouldn't, he, everything God commands, he makes possible. So this morning, there's something here for you that is possible, that he would look at this world that he told us is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You would look at these things that people would allow their lives to be driven by those. And he says, you don't have to let those draw you. I want you to love that. Don't want you to set your heart there. Don't want you to be those who are a part of that, that you could say, I, I want to love God. I want to love people. And that would become effective. Okay, so there we are this morning. If you're tracking with me, just to kind of catch us up to where we are, we've seen what it is. We know what the world is. It's a world of sin, rebellion, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. We've seen what he's telling us. Don't love it. Don't let your heart be there. But now we really get to the point of the passage, because really the heartbeat of this passage isn't the definitions that we just covered, though I hope they're helpful. Though now I hope you understand what we're talking about and the realm that we're talking about, your, your love and the things that you love. We haven't yet really got to what he's trying to say, because the essence of this passage flows in this direction. He wants to tell you why. Like, why should you not do this? Why? Why should you not love the world? Why should this be something that you value as important? Why should you be one that's there? And that's a good question to ask. And, and I'm, I'm just trying to create that and hope that you are because, again, that's what you should hear. You know, in that sense, okay, here we are. Don't love, why should I not love the world, Jim? I mean, you're, you're telling me not to be like, but why? Why can't I do that? Why can't I, you know, do the lust of the flesh? Why can't I have that or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life? What makes that so bad? Can't I do these things? I mean, wh why should this become something that is important to me? 
Why should this be something that you would hear and heed and seek to follow? Well, that's exactly what he tells us. He gives us three reasons. Why don't you notice with me the first one? It was there in verse 15. Let's go back and see it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, wow. Did you hear it? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That loving the world is incompatible with loving God. You can't have one and the other at the same time. That if you love the world, where you love the world, you cannot love God. That this becomes the main reason that he would look at this and say, wherever that happens, wherever we allow our lives to be captured with this world, it drives out the love of God. Like two opposing magnetic forces, they cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. Like, wow. I mean, I'm just going to tell you, pause. I hope I'm making sense. I wish God would help me to make it even more sense than I am right now, because if you're tracking with me, this is a really, really big deal. Loving God's everything. We just talked about it last week, that it's our highest goal. It's the goal of all Christian living is to get to this place where God becomes our everything. It's our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy. There's not a single person here that God doesn't want this for you. You have been made, designed, to have a relationship with God. And that relationship is everything. It is the most satisfying, the most rewarding, the most life-giving. Paul would talk about it. If you were with us last week when he talked about it in Philippians 3, he said, you know, it's, it's now, you know, the far surpassing knowledge of God. It's the exceedingly great. This idea of knowing God makes everything else pale in comparison. This relationship with God is so full, so real, so satisfying. It's meant to be this in your life. There's not anybody here that God doesn't have this for you. And if you believe that with me, then this is where it becomes really scary. Because if you love the world, you're missing out. You're missing out on the main thing. You're missing out on the very reason for your existence. You can't have them both. You can't. To the extent that you allow yourself to love the world, you're, you're, you're cut off from really entering into a full relationship, knowing and loving God. And if you could believe me in this, you would need nothing else. If I could communicate that as well as I want to, this would be enough to say, okay, wait, really? Okay, you know, maybe I was kind of half paying attention a moment ago to like the world and don't love the world and lust of flesh. Yeah, you know, that's kind of, wait a second, you realize, you, if I go there, I cannot love God there. In, if, if you could get that, it would be like, okay, I need, that's serious. I mean, we, you're saying that this will drive out the other. Yes, you can't have both at the same time. Wherever one is, the other will be gone. And so wherever we allow the world to occupy space, we're cut off in that moment from loving God. But it kind of goes the other way as well, by the way. If you would love God, if you would pursue Him and make Him your greatest desire and goal, it'll push out the love of the world. Because loving God is what we're made for. Loving God is what we're made for. Now, this might be helpful. I think about this reality. I, hope it, I wish I could say it better. God, just drive it closer than I have done. But these two incompatible realities, this one definition not only is the main thing, sometimes it can be the most helpful thing in defining what worldliness actually is. See, we just gave a definition, right? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Tried to give some pretty good definition to it, understanding what it is. But let's just be honest. Sometimes it can still be confusing. It's like, okay, you know, am I being worldly? Is this worldly? I don't know if this is worldly. I mean, God, what is this? What Christians have found over the centuries is that sometimes just understanding this reality really helps us identify worldliness. Because the moment that you allowed worldliness to get a hold of you, it just pushes out the love of God. So that, you know, here's how it works. So you're doing something, and all of a sudden you find yourself captivated by the, 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 the world or by sin. God's gone. His closeness, his presence, his, you know, just knowing him, it cuts it off. And that should be really, really clear. It's like, okay, you know, wait, wait what happened? You know, like, you know, I thought I, I had a quiet time this morning. I was spending time with him. I was doing really, really well. And then all of a sudden, you know, I just became, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And all of a sudden, that God, what happened to that? And it should be like, okay, 
being you know, worldliness, sin just happened because it, it, can just, it can define that. Other times people are like, am I being worldly? It's like, oh, I'm doing this and God is in it. I mean, I'm enjoying his presence. I'm in his fellowship. That must just be condemnation or fear or any of those things because they can't exist together. And so God's presence itself can become the most defining thing. But again, just saying, hey, that's what we need. And once more, if that could just land, you would get it and say it's altogether worthy. It's the reason that you should see this as a serious thing and say, I don't want to love the world because it's incompatible with loving God. So that's the first reason. It's the main one. And again, you really don't need more, but he does give you more. So let's go to the second one. There he gives it to us in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father. It's of the world. It's not of the Father. It's of the world. It's not of God. It's not His will for your life. Yeah, when we allow our hearts to be captured by worldliness and worldliness becomes that which we're living for, it's a rejection of God's will. It's a rejection of His plan. And I probably just should pause and say this, though it's a much bigger deal than we have time to talk about, God's will is the best for you. I hope you could believe that. It's a satanic lie that just permeates our world. It began there in the Garden of Eden that Satan began to question whether what God had was good or not. He continues to do that, but I just want to say it clearly. There's not anything. There's not anything better for your life than God's will. It would be the best. It would be the, he knows you, he understands you, he has a plan for your life. And if you could look at it and say, God's will, that would be the best thing for your life. That would be the most rewarding, satisfying, good, life-giving. I mean, choosing his will, and that's what we're supposed to be choosing. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, for example, we come and say, you know, God, your will be done on earth as in heaven. God, I want what you want from my life. That should be where we are. But worldliness is a rejection of that. Now, interestingly enough, worldliness is often good things that are out of God's will, timing, or place. In fact, we could just say it this way. Satan has never created anything. He's not God. Sin has never created anything. All it has done is taken God's good gifts and taken them out of the parameters that he gave them. All that sin has done is taken what God intended for good in our lives and then invited us to find satisfaction in those out of God's plan for our life. So we talked about, for a moment, like lust of the flesh, which, you know, one of the primary ones that's used in the New Testament talks about immorality, talks about sex, and here's what we need to understand. God's design. It was God's gift. It was God gave it inside marriage as a beautiful display and a part of that relationship, a part of love that's in there, and it's beautiful. God says in Hebrews, the marriage bed, it is undefiled. There's a beautiful place in that. But what sin has done is said, you don't have to have it God's way. You can have it your way. You can have it out of God's plan, out of God's timing, out of the parameters that he gave. And so what was good now becomes evil because it takes it out of God's plan for our life. That can be true for sex. That can be true for food. That can be true for, for every other desire that kind of finds itself in there which helps us even in understanding Jesus' temptation, right? So let me just remind you of it. So you saw a moment ago that Jesus was tempted by Satan. He was fasting, and so Satan comes to him and says, why don't you just turn the, the, the stones into bread? You know, you're hungry. Take care of yourself right now. Is bread bad? No. Would Jesus eat bread at other times? Yes. It was bad then. That was a season that the Holy Spirit had led him into a time of waiting on God and fasting. It wasn't that bread was evil. It was not what God had for him then. That good thing had become an evil thing because now it was being desired to fulfill it outside of God's timing, outside of God's provision, outside of God's plan. And so often it is that way as well. And so what John is saying is, if you go into the world, if you love the world, you're choosing to rebel against God's plan for your life. You're saying, okay, God, I, I don't believe you. I don't believe what you have is good for me. And, and, and you're, you're missing. The moment you, could, you, not only are you missing a relationship with God, you're missing what your life could be. You're missing the intent that God would plan for your life. I mean, you're missing God's will. And it's enough just to say, hey, that's not what you want. It would keep you from loving God. It would keep you out of his plan for your life, which really flows into the third. Go on down to verse 17. It says, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 
This world, it has an expiration date that is not too far off in the distance. It's going away. It's already lost. Sin is defeated. Jesus is coming back. This world is going to end. And in that sense, to choose worldliness would be investing your life in that which is going away. He says, here's you just need to understand that this world is passing away. So why would you choose to invest yourself in something that's going to go away? Okay, let me try to put it to you in a really silly picture. I'm probably not going to do this well, but let me try. Let's say I was a broker, financial broker, and you came and said, hey, Jim, I'm trying to save up. I want to do a 401k or I want to invest into retirement. I said, man, I, I have a great plan for you. It's a great plan. So you have to get into this. You buy into it, and there's no, it's one of these plans you, know, you kind of buy into and you're stuck. Here's the deal. If you would invest into this, I guarantee you an immediate really, really great return. It's going to immediately spike high, and then all of a sudden, it's going to go away to nothing, and you'll lose everything you ever invested. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. Now, again, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm just going to tell you, if you would sit before me as a financial broker, that sounds like a great idea. So I give you my money, and it spikes, and then I lose every penny I invested because it entirely, that, well, that sounds great. I think I should, that, I mean, some of you are like, that is my investment plan. That's how I've done it. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's a terrible idea. I mean, who would want to do that? You know, that's a terrible way to live your life. I mean, you, you, and yet they says, if you choose the world, that's what you're doing. You're investing into something that is going to dissipate in a moment. You're investing your life into something that's not going to last. You're wasting your existence. You're wasting who you are. In contrast to that, God's will is forever. Again, he gives it to us, that verse. He says, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God. If you choose, I I don't want my way. I don't want my plan. I want God's plan. That's forever. That'll last forever. That's that's, that's an ever-enduring thing. It's a great verse, by the way. I just tossed this out there. I was just, when I was researching this week, sometimes uh, some of us as believers have verses that become almost like our life verse that like, it just resonates with us. I found it very, very interesting that D.L. Moody, one of the great evangelists in church history, this was his life verse. It's on his tombstone where he just kind of put it on there. says, you know, that, that in this sense, he who does the will of God abides forever. Like, do this as forever. Invest yourself here. It lasts forever. And it's a very, very good way to live. So again, I'm I'm finding myself just thinking, I'm hoping I'm communicating, but maybe let me try another way. Because these two right here, this idea that it's not of God because it's not his will for you and it would waste your life. When I think about processing it, one of the things that helps me to process it is an understanding of how that's actually going to work out for me as a follower of Jesus. So I, I take a passage in 1 Corinthians that goes this way. It says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Really big deal, and I'm just going to quickly touch it. Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and life. Nobody gets to God any other way. He's the only way to life. That only He is that way, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, then this is the only way. You've got to become a follower of Jesus. It's the only solution. That He would bring your life to be built upon Jesus. That said, as a follower of Jesus, He says, now if anyone takes and builds on that, that life that you have in Christ, You build on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. So it says here you're living your life and then we're gazing forward to a day that's going to show how we've lived our life. Where have you invested your days, your minutes, your life? Is it wood, hay, and stubble, or is it gold, silver, and precious stones? And so here's the thing. I mean, honestly, it's a part of our lives, and there's a day that's going to declare it. I hope you know this. I just want to say it to you very, very quickly. There's a judgment coming for every person here this morning. If you don't know Jesus, your judgment is known in the book of Revelation as the great white throne judgment. You're going to sit before God the Father, and your life is going to be judged, and you're going to be condemned and cast into eternal hell because the only rescue is Jesus. How I'd long that nobody will be there. How I'd long that you today wouldn't be that in that place. Jesus is the only rescue. And if you know him, you will never stand there. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We will not be condemned, but don't misunderstand me. There is a judgment. But it's not the great white throne judgment of God the Father. It's what 2 Corinthians calls the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the word that's there is sometimes called is the bema seat. It's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of rewards. 
It's as if Jesus wants to look, is there anything he can honor, anything that he can hold? And so that's what's being pictured here. So, so whatever you do with your life, however you spend your days, it's being invested. And then it's going to be revealed by fire. Fire is going to test each one's work of what sort it is. So it's as if almost you could see your life and everything's kind of gathered there before Jesus, Jesus and then the eternal fires of God burn. And wherever you invested your life into worldliness, and all of us have. Let's just be clear, all of us have. So there's not like any of it, there's nobody's going to you know, survive this perfectly. Whatever was worldly, it's just going to be burned away. It's going to be burned away. And he says, if anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. He says, once that's done, once everything's burned away of what you've invested your life to, if you did good, what's left? Jesus can say, well done, good and faithful servant, where he can speak to that. Now, I don't know how you feel about that day. I just want to tell you, it's a little bit terrifying, but it's also delightful. I, it is for me, because there's days like, Lord, burn it all away. <laughs> like, everything I did that was lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, burn it away. Like, I, I'm, I'm excited that it's all going to go away. I just hope there's stuff left after that, you know? I mean, I just really is the, I, it's like, I hope that when all of it's gone, there's going to be something that I did for Christ. I really loved him, and I want to have as much as I possibly could have there. But here's the scary thing. Not everybody will. The next verse says, if anyone's work, and the idea here is all of your work, is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet at, so as through fire. So please understand me, we're not talking about salvation. If you know Jesus, condemnation is not yours, or you're going to go to heaven. But there are going to be some Christians, I hope it's not anybody here, that when you stand before Jesus and the fire burns, everything you did, every moment you spent, it's gone. You invested your life into the world. You lived for the world. And there won't be anything. And there you'll be before Jesus like, okay, wasted my life. That's what I did. You know, I totally lived my life for the wrong things. You'll still go to heaven. You just won't have anything to honor him. No reward at that moment. And so here I'm just speaking to you and saying, don't let that be you. Don't waste your life. Don't waste who you are. Don't invest yourself into things that are going away. Invest your life into eternity, which is what John is saying, which is why he's saying, don't love the world. Don't, don't do that, because if you do that, you're investing yourself into things that don't satisfy, that isn't what God has, cut you off from him, and ultimately, it's going to go away. It's temporary. But if you love God, and you love people, if you give even a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, it's going to stand in that day. And Jesus will say, well done. You did that for me. You did that because you loved people. And that will survive, and that's what we want. Now again, let's just be clear. All of us are going to have stuff burned away, but it's as if we want to look at this moment and say, I just would like it to be as little as possible. I mean, you know, we can't fix the past, and the past is the past already. And so, again, you're, you're, how you've lived your day up to this point in time, your days, let's just, hey, one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind. But as much time as you have left, why would you want to invest into that that's going away? Why would you want to live your life for that which isn't eternal? He's just reasoning with us and saying, it's worth doing. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping just in that alone, you begin to feel what John is saying. Because, again, there might be some of us who kind of gazed into this past. He's like, don't love the world. That's such a churchy thing. And you didn't realize how much was at stake. And now you're like, wait a second. So loving the world keeps me from loving God, robs me of God's will for my life, and makes my life waste. I waste everything I'm existing. There's good reason for me not to love the world. There's good reason for me to be serious about where my heart is and, and say, okay, God, I want to love you and I want to love people and I don't, wanna, I don't want those things to attract me. And I'm hoping just in that that God is reasoning. But let me try from one other angle. I wish I had more time for this. I don't have a ton of time, but I, just take a few more moments with you to, to think through it. Let me give it to you in two life examples that work really well for me and might work well for you. I want to compare Abraham and Lot. Abraham and his nephew Lot. Now, if you're new to the Bible reading, you haven't read these, it may not be something that's going to land really, really well with you, and I apologize for that, but I will encourage you, read it. 
Go read Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, read about Genesis 24, read these lives of these two men and allow it to speak to you. But for many of you, you know it, and so just reminding you of what's there is going to give you a visual of everything we've tried to talk about this morning. Here's what I need you to understand. Both of these men, both of these men are saved. Both of these men are going to be in eternity, and if you know Jesus, you're going to meet them. I mean, Abraham, of course, he's the father of faith. I mean, the Bible holds his faith as an example of our faith, so that Romans would tell us that if we have a, a believing faith in Jesus, we've entered into the faith of Abraham, that our, we're counted righteousness by believing just like Abraham was. Abraham's a believer, that we know, but Lot, his nephew, is also a believer, now, if you've read the account in Genesis, you would have been like, really? Like, I didn't see that. I mean, I was kind of looking for that. I didn't see it. We wouldn't know it unless the New Testament came in and Peter speaks about it. He speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God turned into ashes. He condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who would afterwards live ungodly, showing, hey, this is how God feels about people living in the world and being ungodly. And then God delivered righteous Lot who is oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now, here's where I just want to draw you into it. Maybe it lands for you. Just I know, and I read this passage, and it really grabbed me. It's like, righteous lot? Are we talking about the same guy? Like, I, I didn't think he was righteous. I mean, I've read Genesis, and it's like, I didn't think he was right. And God's like, no, he is. He's got a righteous soul. It's like, oh, really? That's interesting. I didn't know, I, I didn't know he was righteous. I, I, and yet he was. I mean, he had this righteous soul, and so they're both saved. We're going to meet both of them in eternity, but it's right there where they live their lives in two very different ways. Abraham's a godly man, not a perfect man. None of us are. But if you read his life, he was godly. He lived for God. He lived following into God's ways, being a, a pilgrim and a stranger in a strange land. You know, even when God tests him in Genesis 22 and says, hey, give me your best. Offer me even your son. He doesn't hold that back. He's as if he says, God, I'll, I'll, you're first. And he has this incredible godly life that is really, really impacting. Lot, on the other hand, is a very worldly man. That when we talk about loving the world, Lot is like the poster child for what loving the world looks like. They really get separated, Abraham and Lot. God separates them. It tells us in Genesis 13 that Lot lifted his eyes and he saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Lot, notice, chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan. You just need to hear that because we're talking about the will of God. Lot chose for himself. He picked, like, I want that. Even though, though it looked good, it was bad. It goes on to say, Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. He pitched his tent even as far as Sodom, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. I mean, exceedingly wicked, but Lot chose to live there. Lot chose to be close to that. He, he, he wanted it. He chose that. He becomes this worldly man. Abraham, this godly man, is this man that has this full life. I mean, again, not perfect, but godly, impacting example for us. In fact, I like even the way his life ends. In Genesis 25, it says, Abraham breathed his last and he died in a good old age and a man full of years gathered to his people. And, and the way the Hebrew reads, it's not just like he was an old man. It's like, no, he had a good life. It's a full life. It's a life that he got to be the friend of God, walk in God's ways, impact eternity. It's a pretty incredibly good life. Lot lived a tortured life. How do you know that, Jim? Well, because that's what it tells us in Peter. Peter tells us, he says he delivered righteous Lot, the verse we were just looking at a moment ago, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. He's righteous, but he's oppressed by the world that he's choosing to live in. For that righteous man, it goes on to say, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This is one of those sobering, somber verses that you could spend a lot of time with. I just want you to hear it. Who tormented Lot's soul? He did. He tortured himself. He tormented his soul. Why? Because he stayed there. Because he lived in the world, became a part of the world, and he his life was not a good life. You, didn't look, you wouldn't have looked at that, man, that, well, you know, he, he, he had the lust of the flesh. He really enjoyed it. It's like, no, he didn't. He was tortured. He was miserable. 
is a miserable existence. It was a tortured, tormented life because he chose the wrong things and he tormented his own life. Abraham has this incredible life of impact. I mean, he literally changes things in the world. I mean, he prays for things. I mean, even when he comes and buries his wife, Sarah, some of you know this scene, he's like, man, I'm just a stranger and pilgrim. He's like, no, you are a, they come and say, you're a prince among us. Like, you're a man who changes things. He is a godly man that touched the world. Lot has nothing. Lot's impact is eternally insignificant. Abraham not only impacted his family, we've now become family with him. He is now our family. Again, that's a big theological thing, but I just want to tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus, it tells us in Romans, we've been grafted into the faith of Abraham. His family is ours. What he started, we enter into. He touched eternity. I mean, he touched his family and generations so that it stretches all the way down into 2022 so that we would say, I'm a child of Abraham. Like, I'm still impacted by this man's godly life. It's true. Lot loses everything. He lost his family. See, if you know the whole scene, Abraham prays for Sodom and Gomorrah before it's destroyed. And he gets down to says, if there's just 10 righteous in the city, if there's just 10 righteous people, would you save the city? And God says, yes. 10 righteous would have been Lot and his family. And they're not. 10 righteous would have been there. And so the, the angel comes to speak to Lot and says, you know, when he's going to take Lot out of the city, he says, do you have anybody? Do you have anybody here? Take them with you. So Lot goes to his older two children that are already married and tries to tell them of the impending judgment of God. And it tells us they considered him to be joking. He had no credibility. He had no ability to speak into their lives. They just laughed him off, and so they stay in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's still kind of hanging out, and so the angel actually forcibly removes Lot, his wife, and his two younger daughters, but his wife turns around and goes, looks back at the city, and she turns into a pillar of salt. So now it's just Lot and his two younger children. But if you know the story, they may have come out of Sodom, but they brought Sodom and Gomorrah with them. I mean, it's a bad deal. I mean, it's a horrible thing. In fact, it really looks like Lot's the only one. He's saved, but it doesn't seem like he had a life of any impact. I mean, he doesn't bring anybody with him. Nobody in his family. He doesn't, make, he doesn't rescue anybody. His life is a wasted life. I mean, when we talked about this a moment ago there in Corinthians, that some people are going to get to the end of their life, and their whole work is going to be burned. They're going to suffer loss. That's Lot. That's Lot. He wasted his entire life. He has nothing. He, he, he didn't impact life. He didn't bring anybody with him. He didn't touch anybody for God. It wasn't him. He is the poster child for the man who loved the world. Abraham, on the other hand, I mean, not only is he one that impacted it, God looks and says he's unashamed of him. Yeah, let me just give it to you in Hebrews. And so in Hebrews, it's talking about Abraham and uh, his descendants. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them and confessed. They were strangers and they were pilgrims on the earth. It says, you need to understand this about Abraham. He believed it. He believed he was not a part of this world. He looked at this world and said, this is not my world. I'm, this not my, I'm a stranger here. I'm a pilgrim. Now, the Bible tells us we are to be that. But like Abraham, we're to say, I'm, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm a stranger. I'm a pilgrim. Abraham believed that. He says, those who say that, who really believe that, who say such things, they declare plainly that they're seeking a homeland, that they're longing for something more. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Like, if you want this world, you can have it. If you really want this world, there's enough places to draw you into it. Abraham didn't. He didn't want it. But now it goes on to say they desire it as a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I just want to tell you, that's an incredible honor. That in one sense, you look at Lot, and if I can say it this way, it's a little bit of like, yeah, Lot's got a righteous soul, you know, a little ashamed. I mean, it's not like God's like, I'm not, he's like, I'm like, kind of ashamed, you know, in, in one sense of that. But Abraham's like, that's, that's my son. Here's a man. And, and God looks at him and says, man, he, he believed it. He didn't get involved. He didn't live for this world. He lived for eternity. He, he knew who he was. He changed things. And here's a man who, who walked in those ways. And that just I love the way he says it. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's like, yes, that's my son. 
Would it not be great to you and I to be in the same place that God would say, that's my son, <laughs> that's my daughter right there. You see how they're living? See how they do that? They're in the world, not of the world. That's the kind of thing that Abraham had. That's the place. And maybe just having these two examples would help somebody. I mean, it does for me. I mean, I can think through everything I've tried to say this morning, and then all I have to say is, Jim, don't be a lot. It's like, I don't want to be a lot. I don't want to be a lot. I don't, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be that man that wasted my life, that doesn't impact anybody and doesn't see anybody else go with me into eternity and loses my family and loses everything. I don't want that to be me. I don't want it to be you. That's why he's telling us. That's why John is speaking to us. Don't let it be you. Don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world because it's incompatible with loving God. It will rob you of his will for his life and you will waste your days. Don't love the world don't love the world. Don't let your heart be captured by that. Turn your heart to love God and love people. That's what he's talking about when he's spoken of this saying, we know what the world is. We're not supposed to love it. He's told us why. And I've tried to give you reason. And I'm telling you, if it works in you like it's supposed to, it'll compel you to go that direction. To say, okay, God, grab my heart. Get a hold of my heart because I want to love what I'm supposed to love. I want to love God. I want to love people. I don't want to love the world. Because it'll mess up my life. I know that's really what God would have. And so I'm inviting you into such a space that that would work inside you. One more thing and we'll close. So I've spoken to you, and really, for the most part, I've spoken to you as believers. A couple times I've reminded you, if you don't know Jesus, you need him. But I want to just come back to it and say it this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, the thing is you really are not of the world. And you're called to be living that way. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, the Bible's really clear. You are a part of the world even if you don't realize it. You're in a world that is really, you know, that, that Satan's a part of. He's the prince of the power of the air, that he's at work among the sons of disobedience, that this world and its system is you. And right now, you don't have a relationship with God. You're not in his will, and you are wasting your life. You don't have a relationship with God. You're not in God's best, and you are wasting your life. But today, that's exactly what Jesus is offering. He's coming and saying, I would draw you out of that. I would rescue you from a world that is perishing, that is dying, to draw you into a relationship with God, to, to bring your life into his will and to a life that is not wasted. And if that's you this morning, I just invite you into a surrender to God and that he would rescue you now. So you can close your Bibles, your notebooks if you haven't already done so. And I just wanna ask you to pray about that for a moment. If you're here and that's you and I just spoke to you and you need to surrender your life to Jesus, it's a good moment for you to do that. It's a good moment for you to ask him to rescue you out of the world. And if that is spoken to you in a way that you need that, ask him for that and then come up and talk to us afterwards. We would love to talk to you more about Jesus. But for many of you, you're followers of Jesus. And the question is right now, is it wood, hay, and stubble or is it gold, silver, and precious stone? What are you doing with your life? Don't waste it. Don't miss what God has. Don't miss him. Don't love the world. Don't love it. And so I just want, wherever that's met you this morning, would you go before him and just ask him to help it be that your heart is captured by him and what he has, that you would just ask him to, to, to work that heart inside you that is loving God and loving people and that that would even be the way that you spend your days, that you wouldn't be like Lot. You'd be like an Abraham. So quietly between you and the Lord, would you talk to him about that? I'll do the same. And we'll close in worship in just a moment. God, I believe you that this world is going to end soon. It's going to pass away. Rescue those here that don't know you. Draw them to you. Rescue them from this world and all of its emptiness. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the rescue. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And I honor you for that. And then, Lord, I want to bring my brothers and sisters before you and my life before you.
and just ask that you would help this to be true of us, that we don't love the world. Where right now we love the world, would you rescue it from us from it? Recognizing that where we love the world, we are cut off from you, we're missing what you have for our lives, and we're wasting it. We're wasting our days. God, don't let us do that. Don't let us be like Lot. When I gaze forward to that day when my life is going to be tested and all the wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned away, and I, I actually am glad. I want these things gone. But from this day forward, Lord, I just wanted like to invest in less of that in my life. Help me to turn away from the world, not to love the world, not to let that be the, the things that draw my heart. May it be you. May he draw us to you, me to you. Draw us to what you have, Lord, that is life-giving because living in your will, it's eternal. It lasts forever. And I want more of that. Pray that for me and for all of us right now. So we just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.